The Boys Own Tribe Podcast, Episode 6, Sex and Sexiness. Welcome to the Boys Don't Try Podcast. It's a delight to be uh, back with you again. Um, Matt, Mark, how are you doing? Um, we're getting very close to the end of term. Are we crawling towards it? Yeah, but something momentous has happened, uh, chaps. I, I have, What's that? I have had a haircut. <laughs> we can see. Yeah, yeah. We can see. You, you can, but, but our, <laughs> our, our d- delightful listeners uh, can't. But yeah, I, I, I can assure you it looks amazing. It does. You know who you look like? Go on. <laughs> you look like Carl Frott. <laughs> Johnny Evans, it's definitely Johnny Evans. Carl, I'll go. He's much more Carl Frotch. For, for, <laughs> for, for non-sports fans, uh, those are both men who've broken their noses too many times. <laughs> <laughs> the good news is, though, Mark, that last week when we recorded, because your hair was getting so crazy, you looked like Captain Caveman. So that was true. Last week's insults were muffled by the hair over my head, <laughs> so, so it's fine. <laughs> so uh, this week we're talking about sex and sexism, and it's it's uh, it's a a, a big old meaty subject and um, we are also going to have a special guest which is also a nice surprise for everybody we're not going to give anything away yet before we get into all of that it's um, Jermaine thinking... Greer it's Jermaine Greer <laughs> <laughs> but I was trying to think this, this it, it, obviously we try and always start these these pods with a sort of an amusing chat about masculinity and how it affects us um, I, I was thinking this week of what, what are the things that you do that you're embarrassed to tell your mates around or certain mates about um, because they in some way diminish your masculinity. Have you got any of those things, chaps? Read. <laughs> what? Read Wait, bo- do you know what? That, <laughs> read books. That is really interesting. Are you? Uh, yeah. There are, cer- there are certain friends that I wouldn't go down that road with. Yeah. I've already got that reputation, I think, that I, I'm a reader, so I'm, I yeah. get that abuse whether I admit it or not at this stage. Yeah, like... Reading books ain't too cool. Reading books ain't like too cool where I'm. Oh, it winds me right up that. Same oh. here. The the only acceptable books are indeed the only acceptable documentaries, which is another big um, hidden passion of mine, are to do with bands, uh, sport. Yeah. Mm, that's about it. Really. Cartel leaders. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 Colombian yeah. crime lords, uh, yeah. or any any kind of things about bare knuckle boxes of the nineteen seventies. That's fine. Um, but yeah, in my experience, the, the the kind of documentaries I watch on BBC Four, apart from the musical ones, uh, would would leave me pretty shunned and uh, yeah, embarrassed and ostracised. So that's interesting. Right. Okay. So here's the thing. I think I've got the perfect. I've got the perfect example. Okay. Because there are two. I've got two main hobbies. Right. One of which I think is the coolest thing in existence and I tell everybody about. And the other thing I will only tell very select people about, right? So the first, the, the one that I don't tell people about, which is actually, which is also the one I'm much better at, by the way, is amateur dramatics, okay? James, can I ask a, can I ask a question about this amdram? Does it involve singing? Is it? Is it? Are we talking music? Are we talking musicals? I have performed in musicals, not recently, right. but I have performed oh, in musicals. Right. I'm gonna right, right now. I've also you know, done, you directed know, and performed in Shakespeare. Right. Wait. 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 Um, you know the. You know. You know the. A few episodes back where you two were competing about your five k time, or I said episode. I mean every bloody morning when I wake up and you're WhatsApping me about your five k time. Right. Let's do a. Let's do a Amdram off. 
Um, what's the biggest role you've played? Have you played Captain Von Trapp in The Sound of Music? No. I have. Uh, the, the, big, the biggest part I played was that's I played not... the Vicomte de Valmont in Dangerous Liaisons. What? Dangerous Liaisons? Vicom... That's a film, isn't it? No, it wasn't. Yeah, I, I did, I've done very few musicals. And in musicals, I tend to be standing at the back because I'm not, I'm not fully into musicals in the same way. I love plays. Oh, I love so when theater. you say Amtram, you're like proper, like you're acting and everything. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. So yeah. I was just singing and dancing, which I'm very adept at. The point I was making is I don't tell many people that because I get quite derided by that. Even my own brother still destroys me about all that rubbish. The thing, the thing that I do that's cool though is I play guitar in an Oasis tribute band and like a proper Oasis. It's not just five blokes in a in a garage. We go and play big gigs. What are you called? Um, are you allowed to tell us? Yeah, we definitely could be. Ah, nice. Uh, nice. You, nice. You didn't get marked to do your title then. <laughs> Because <laughs> that would be, it would be, we, it'd be much, much longer. We definitely could be uh, Oasis, but we might not be. But we, we're pretty sure we are. And we'll uh, let Mark Roberts <laughs> let us know. <laughs> right. Anyway, though, the point is that's cool. So I tell lots of people about it. The Andram less cool. I think actually still cool, but I'm not allowed to think that in certain circles. So I tell less people about that. And that is purely about the association with acting and the theatre being about homosexuality and campness, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I want to say that um, I want to say that your Amjam is cool, but I just can't bring myself to saying it. And therefore, and therefore emphasising my point. Yeah, exactly. And it's partly a joke, but also it's like, it does Amjam, oh. Um, you, you know, you know what we, we we're really fighting against there. That this country we're talking about anti-intellectualism and, and anti kind of putting yourself out there. I was I don't know if anybody's been listening to the uh, Frank Skinner podcasts lately. Uh, when he the talk, poetry the ones. Poetry oh, ones, they're yeah. brilliant. They're and brilliant. One thing that stopped me in the nerds. Yeah, I'm, 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 I'm embracing it. I'm, I'm, I'm running there. I'm listening to poetry when I'm doing my five Ks that are beating you. Um, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm stopping every two minutes and analysing <laughs> still, still <laughs> and still oh, oh you got no, me there but, no, but seriously he, um, he, he says that he, I hate the word pretentious he said I hate people using it because it's kind of like a, an attack on intellectualism it's an attack on creativity and I think this is what, we, what we're dealing with and we're, we're a bit embarrassed to say it and it's a shame no. we need to be brave and we need to embrace our own no I do think we. I disagree, Mark. We need to attack intellectualism as like because intellectualism isn't about being interested in something, is it? it? Intellectualism is about letting the whole bloody other world, like everyone in the world, know that you're intellectual. That's what intellectualism is. It isn't enjoying art or poetry. It's letting every other bloody person in this world that can't letting them know that you know. That's what intellectualism is, don't you think? No, no, no. We talked before about Jekyll and Hyde. I'm, I'm the I'm a kind of repressed intellectual that wants to tell everybody, but don't do it. Yeah, but you just said on a podcast. You just said you just you just said on a podcast <laughs> that you listened to some bloke that used to present something about football, talking about poetry. That's intellectual. No, but that's intellectualism, isn't it? Intellectualism isn't being interested in these things. Intellectualism is. Just, being interested in these things and letting other people know that you are. <laughs> I thought we were just talking between friends, that's all. I, I do find myself becoming increasingly resistant to 
intellectualism because I've associated it with a certain social class and stuff like that, and I'm desperately fighting against it. You know, that, but that's because you you've been told as a, as a working class as a person from a working class background you're not allowed to be intellectual, and you've kind of internalised that and accepted it. No, it's not that. It's not that I, I I'm I'm not allowed to be. It's that. I don't even want to be, and, and the reason I don't want to be is because, um, because it, you're embarrassed to tell your mates about it. No, 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 no. <laughs> like we're teaching, or you've been taught to despise it. <laughs> yeah, no. Like in my teaching experience, early on in my formative years, people just took the piss out of me because of my shaved head, how I spoke, and all the rest of it. And so, almost, I became like a caricature of myself. And so, even maybe now, when I'm saying I'm resistant to that kind of intellectual curiosity, I ain't, but I'm just tired of it. Maybe it isn't just that I'm tired of it. Maybe I'm making excuses. James, is, is this a snappy little intro you were looking for? <laughs> <laughs> I, think, I think we got there a little while ago. I think we got there a little while ago. Um, Right, let's uh, let's uh, let's move it on. Let's talk about sex and let's talk about sex and sexism, and let's introduce our special guest. Right, this is odd, gents, isn't it? There's someone else in the room or in the Zoom, um, whichever you want to call it. Uh, Carly, welcome. Uh, this is Carly Moran. Carly, tell us a bit about yourself. Hello. I'm deputy head at Westminster City School, which is a boys' school in central London. Um, I started my career teaching girls. I went to an all-girls school, um, and then I moved to teach in a mixed school, and now I teach in a boys' school, although we do have a mixed sixth form. Um, I feel like it's given me quite an astute perspective on the way children of different genders behave and are perceived in those different environments. Carly, you're already far more qualified qualified to have written our book than we are. <laughs> <laughs> Matt, do you just want to tell everybody why we've got Carly on for this particular episode? Um, yeah, I think, um, firstly, she's well clever. Um, so me and Carly met because she organised a women ed event, hashtag women ed, um, and she invited me along, and I was, uh, yeah, I, I mean, I, I got on with Carly right away, and I was bowled over by um, kind of her beliefs, I guess, her like her, philo- her educational philosophy, um, not just about boys and gender and stuff, but also about, um, you know, like, banging the whole working class drums, a big thing of mine and stuff. Um, I like the way Carly talks, and I don't just mean about, like, what she says, but how how she sounds when she says it. Thank you. <laughs> That's all right. There's more of that to come, if you like. And also, I think it was really important on this episode to have a female voice on it. I, I, I don't know if that sounds tokenistic, I perhaps it does but it but yeah thank i mean I th- you know this whole podcast is about experience and stuff and yeah we we can't even fathom what it must be like to be female um in the wider world let alone the education environment and so i think carly needs to be here <laughs> yeah absolutely we also we, we certainly can't fathom what it feels like to be in this kind of situation as a woman and we, you know when we're talking about things like sexual harassment let alone sexism that's that's something that we 
we'll really struggle to articulate for ourselves. So we, we want to have a, a female voice for that reason. Does it feel tokenistic? Not at all. I think it's better that you reach out and acknowledge that you might understand, but you haven't known and felt and therefore to ask someone for their perspective. Not that I speak for all women, but you know, there are things that are often particular to a female experience. I think it's good that you recognise that. Let's get stuck into this then. We're here to talk about sex and sexism. Carly, I'm going to start with you if I may. You've worked in both single sex schools and mixed environments. Is it your experience that misogynistic or sexist behaviour from boys is commonplace? Let's just sort of start on that with a nice, nice broad brush. No, not to the girls that they're at school with. I think there's sometimes a tendency to talk about girls they know outside of school and the way they talk about them might objectify them. I think misogyny, I probably wouldn't go that far, but I think objectification for sure. But I've I've not seen much of them do it with their peers. I think there's maybe they just don't see those girls in that particular light and so therefore it doesn't become a conversation. Um, and I think sometimes as an English teacher you might pick up on these kind of attitudes when you're analysing a female character. Um, but my personal take in that is it's a great opportunity for me to correct that. Um, so yeah I don't think misogyny but I think a particularly shallow um, and kind of physical assessment of a girl's worth is is a dominant thing yeah. I'm interested Carly you mentioned about challenging those kind of um, messages when they come out when you're talking about female characters or so on um, what happens when they, they carry on to dis, continue disagreeing and, st- and still, you know, I'm not having it missed now no, and, and kind of carry on in that way? What, what do you do next? Because that must be tough. Yeah, I think I've got a particular level of confidence in terms of dealing with it, which helps and probably also comes from experience in teaching full stop. But I have had colleagues who've been in that situation where they've kind of presented an essay um, to the pupils, you know, author X presents the women as oppressed figures and the pupils need to analyse that. And we have had occasions where pupils say, well, the women aren't oppressed and they absolutely are, but they refuse to acknowledge it. So then they just come to me and say, Carly, can you speak to this boy because blah, blah, blah. Um, I gear myself up for it, but kind of go armed with the knowledge and the phrases that I need to change their mind. Um, And we sit down and have a chat and usually they leave the space, either pretending (laughs) they agree or they agree. Do you find, Carly, that those those attitudes are uh, learned behaviours from peers or parents? I suspect peers because um, when I think about my husband, for example, he says that he remembers as a teenager having pictures of particular women from, say, FHM on his bedroom wall. And yet his parents are, they're they're real feminists. And I I find it hard to believe they let him do that. So I, I think the peer influence must be more profound than the parent influence in situations like that. And I and I wonder 
how many times parents would have interactions with their sons about that topic like it's one of those awkward things even when people kiss on telly and you watch tv with your parents you kind of cringe when are the opportunities to talk about sexism and how you see women I guess if good relationships are modeled for you then that's helpful but that doesn't mean to say that the opposite is true I just think it's generally something that isn't discussed I think there's a real conflict between teachers desire now to to ensure that their boys and their girls are gender aware very aware that um you know that that gender is kind of a socialized kind of construct um but also this fact that teenagers are more fixated on gender than anybody else aren't they because you know it's all about being a man and, and even if you're not told to be a man when you're when you're 14 years old you know, and everybody wants to be 18, right? Like, you know, everyone wants to be 18. When you when you get to 18, you tell yourself it's because you want to, you, you just want to go to a pub and buy a pint. But actually, if you if you really think about it, and I've, I've been thinking about this a lot recently, yeah, I wanted to be 18 so I could go into a pub and buy a pint, but I wanted to be a man. You know, and that, and, and, and that kind of, the trickle down on that to your 17, 16, 15... 14, 13 and so it's so it's a it's a what you're describing there Mike, is a rite of passage isn't it so is is this kind of sexist behavior this object objectification is is that a rite of passage then as well i think so i objectified women for years not proud of it now um but it made me feel grown up carly did do, does that happen the other way like when when you're a 14 year old girl are you talking about men in terms of, you know, Heat magazine, uh, Body of the Week, or and and all the other unpleasant things that the geezers do? I mean, I'm 38, and I'm only just at the point I think where I don't care what people think of my appearance. You know, if I present to staff, I check my hair. I I did. Um, a webinar last week and realised I'd left all my makeup at school and I I did have a little bit of a panic about it and I had to give myself a good talking to like come on Moran you're you've been asked to do this you know what you're talking about just get on with it and I and I think teenage girls feel like that re- really deeply like they see their worth in terms of how attractive they are to the opposite sex and the kind of comments they get. Whereas as you get older, you're like, that's smarmy, don't talk to me like that. And that's interesting, actually, what you said about the comments I get, because, you know, there are some men, me me being one of them, who cares hugely about how I look. Um, yeah, believe it or not. Um, but the difference is that if I don't look good, rare, I know, but when I don't look good, I don't get any bad comments for it. Um, yeah. And it does start in school. Let's bring it back to the, the, the chapter itself, if I can, Matt. So you reference a lot of anecdotal evidence from teachers, female teachers, um, at the start yeah. of the chapter. And then you hit us with a lot of hard stats uh, from students. Um, and you sort of suggest that this the, this is a catastrophe within schools. That's the phrase you use. Um, so are yeah. we are we, and I say we here in the broadest possible sense, are we allowing a rape culture to grow in our schools? Is that the problem here? 
Oh, God, what a question that is. It would be very easy for me to say no, wouldn't it? It would be very easy for me to say I'm going to offend a few people or people are going to hear this on on, on Twitter. and they're... But I'm going to have to say, yeah, I do think that in many schools, lots of schools, we are facilitating a rape culture. Or we're, we're, we're laying the foundation. No, we're not, we're not facilitating it. Certainly, we're not doing anything to stop the foundations being laid. Yeah? Okay, that's an important distinction. So, can we just define what, what you think are the foundations of a, of a rape culture? You give a nice list at the, at the start of the chapter from the Marshall University Women's Centre. Um, what, what, what are the, the, the features of a rape-cultured society? Um, so, so the Marshall University Women Center. I can't take credit for any of this. This is all them, um, and I, I totally agree with what they said. So, a rape culture society is um, somewhere that kind of trivialises inappropriate sexual behaviours. So, a boy walk whistles at a girl, and they say, um, "Oh, boys will be boys," that sort of thing. Um, tell sexually explicit jokes. Tolerate sexual harassment. Defines manhood as dominant and sexually aggressive. Defines womanhood as submissive. Puts pressure on males to be sexually experienced. Puts pressure on women to not appear frigid. And teaches women to avoid getting raped rather than men not to rape. Um, and you know, that last one, I get... Oh, it's difficult not to swear. I get fed up of seeing schools... Um, that are policing like the way girls dress. So, so often they'll like in lots of schools, girls are being told not to wear skirts, and literally schools are putting out in an public arena the statements: "We have lots of boys in this school, um, and the skirts are providing a distraction for them." Now that does two things. Firstly, it paints boys as these kind of libidinous animals that can't control their sexual urges. But also, it's asking women to change the way they dress because of, of this potentially damaging or, or violent or sexually aggressive behaviours from men. Somebody I know, um, her daughter, her daughter has been told, and she's, she, she was in year six. She was in year six, and she was told she wasn't allowed to wear a skirt to school anymore because, of, um, because it was distracting the boys. What about schools, girls' schools, that don't permit girls to wear trousers? There are schools like that, primary and secondary. You know, my, my boys start school in September and I don't remember on the uniform list seeing trousers for, for girls. I think that's a problem. Is it a suggestion that they're not ladylike if they're in trousers? Is that it? So that's kind of going down a different model where it's kind of moulding them almost to appeal to these traditional appearances of, of what women are meant to be like in, in these kind of traditional ideas. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the arguments tend to have been, it, it looks nicer, it looks smarter. Uh, it's a joke. Going back to this rape culture thing and me saying, yes, schools are, I'm not going to say facilitating, but complicit. I've, I think one of the big arguments at the moment is in lots of schools there's... Um, uh, and Hannah Wilson uh, said this uh, when I interviewed her. Um, she said, 
you know, in many schools there's a, a policy, literally, you know, a written down policy, it's in black and white, about what is constituted or what constitutes homophobia, what constitutes race, racism. But in hardly any schools I know, is there a policy about sexism and what constitutes sexist behaviour. In, in 2017, this study found that 25% of female students at mixed-ed schools had been subjected to unwanted physical touching of a sexual nature. 24%, almost. So you've got a class of, of 20 or 30, 15 of those girls, yeah, like four of them have been sexually harassed that year. Um, and um, the problem is teachers don't know what is sexual harassment, all right? And, um, I mean, that was physical touching, actually, the 24%, but 37% of female students have, have experienced sexual harassment. And schools aren't telling teachers what sexual harassment is. So a boy wolf whistles at a girl in the playground, and teachers don't even think about it. And if they are thinking about it, they're thinking, oh, I can't log that as bad behaviour. But they're, they're afraid of broaching the subject. All schools need to do is write a policy and say, in black and white, this is what we are not accepting anymore. That, I think that bit that you say there, Matt, there about the, about the fear of, of how to tackle it and the, the, the uncertainty, and in some cases thinking it's not a problem, is, is possibly even more of an issue than not being able to recognise it. Do you reckon? I, I, I think that, that if you look at the stories um, that, that come out, some of these absolutely shocking stories about what's happened when female teachers have been subjected to stuff, usually it's a case of often, as you say, SLT dealing with it really badly. Um, and it, yeah, I was about to say, is this, is this not a leadership issue? Is this not about setting the culture right in your school definitely. and dealing with the instance in, in, a, in, a, in a suitable way so that people feel supported when they tackle these things? This is surely a question of we've got to get leaders to put the procedures into place for their schools and the policies into place for their schools so that everybody feels supported in tackling this particular issue. Is it not as simple as that? Yeah, I mean, the, the first problem is that the majority of school leaders are men. See, one of, one, of, one of my questions, one of my questions was, because um, I knew we were going to get here eventually, is blind eye syndrome, we'll call it, right? Is that a male leader issue? I think we need to ask Carla this, because she's, first of all, female and a se more senior than us as well as leaders. So you, what, what do you think? How do you see this? I would firstly say that I have worked for male and female leaders and I've worked for some really great men who I think have done a great job and the reverse is is true I, I, I don't think it means that just because it's male leadership they don't get it some of them really do um, or some of them do once you take it to them I would probably go as far as to say that I think the culture around sexism in a school can be traced back absolutely to the head teacher. You know, we can talk about SLT teams in general and the assistant or deputy head who takes the boy out says, that was naughty, don't speak like that, and you go. But if they work for a head who is seen to be, you know, a feminist and anti-racist and, and that is part of how they work so even if they didn't have a concrete policy I would hope 
a shared understanding and a shared culture of what is and isn't acceptable would permeate that leadership team. I think it's ideal to have a policy, but I, I do think looking at situations I know of that it can be traced back to the perspective of the head teacher. That's why you're lucky though, like your head teacher's really good with that sort of thing. He's fantastic. He takes when the issues do arise, which they do because we're dealing with teenagers. And that that for me is another message. I yeah. think we have to be really careful not to kind of condemn the young people for saying that or doing that. I'm not saying that we let it go, but the education we give them is counterculture. We're going against their yeah. discussions, the music, their films, the media. And so they're going to bring some of those things to us and our job is to tell them it's wrong and tell them why it's wrong and sanction them, yes, of course, if that, that's necessary, then do that. But I think we've got to be not just kind of horrified and disappointed. We've got to see it as an absolute component of what we do in schools. So, Kylie, we see these kind of examples of SLT getting it really badly wrong um, that, that, we, that Matt writes about in the chapter. What kind of advice would you give to, to someone who's working in a school where if you see SLT getting things wrong and, and kind of making their mistakes, what, what could they do? I would like to think they could challenge it and in the moment they may be too hot, angry, upset as you often are like that. Um, but to come back to it and say I'm dissatisfied with that and make it serious. If, if they're not that confident, I guess generally there would be at least one person in that senior leadership team who would be in your tribe so to speak. And I would find them. I mean, I joked with Matt before that I become the face of gender in any school I work in. Um, and it seems to happen really quickly, which suggests to me that perhaps other people aren't talking about it as, as much as I am. Um, and I have had staff come to me and say I was really uncomfortable with this interaction with this pupil or I've seen this or the sixth form girls have told me that even if it's an area outside of my responsibility I think I guess they must see me as someone who understands that is going to take it seriously and deal with it and and I would imagine on most SLTs there's at least someone like that but you've got to push for it and it's got to be about protecting the member of staff but it's also got to be about our moral responsibility to these young people we can't let a, a young boy for example say something perverse to a female member of staff and leave school thinking that's okay like what are the repercussions of that attitude he could end up in some very dangerous situations where he's causing harm I know that might sound extreme but if you don't tackle them you're failing in your responsibility to turn these people into good citizens do you know what i'd say to that carly i, I totally agree with everything you're saying but i'm not sure i agree with this idea that they just don't know you know these boys um do we need to be doing extra so so what happens normally is a kid gets excluded or a half day right but does there need to be a program of education afterwards um which maybe when they swear at a teacher, they don't get. 
I mean, I think a kid could swear swear at a teacher and kick over a desk, and you know they have two days off or a, or a half day exclusion. We don't get them in the next day and go right. You need a a period of training about why kicking desks is bad. But actually, grabbing you know grabbing a girl, surely he needs a period of or a systematic kind of education after the fact. Absolutely. If you've been excluded because you've done harm to someone else, I think verbally or physically to that extent, I think it's the school's responsibility to do more than a 10-minute reintegration meeting. I think in that reintegration, you might decide that they need to have um, a moral education or whatever you want to call it. Um, but absolutely, sending them back to class like that is not okay. And also, I would imagine you'd have to do some work with the member of staff you know in terms of them feeling empowered and comfortable and supported that, that that's really important work otherwise you're going to lose that member of staff and you spread that culture but but that must never happen right i don't know i don't know a single member of staff and obviously i i, I talk a lot about this stuff where are people saying to these these female teachers we're going to support you that's that that's um, that's a traumatic event, but at least offer the support. Do you know what I mean? I think this goes back to the point we were making earlier that the schools aren't geared up for this because the policies aren't in place and the cultures aren't in place. And so we're not ready to be able to offer those sorts of programmes, either for pupils or for teachers. And that's I agree with that, James. Can I interject? I'll say one other thing. Schools aren't willing to admit that sexism is a problem. It's happening in every single school in this country. But the moment you start to deal with it, right, you're saying we've got a problem. So if a school runs an anti-sexism programme, or like my school are doing at the moment, is we're writing a policy, and I think it's going to be groundbreaking about what's acceptable, what's not acceptable. The moment you do that and put that out there in the public arena, you're saying, yeah, the boys at my school and the girls, perhaps, can be sexist. And then all of a sudden... You're open to criticism, aren't you? I love these kids and I want the best for them in terms of, you know, tangible outcomes and the sort of person they leave school being. And sometimes it doesn't feel very nice when they do things that... Maybe not a personal attack on me because I can't say I've experienced it, but I hear of it and I'm disgusted by it. And measuring that against loving them, like you say, if you write a policy about sexism, people will feel like, oh, so we're anticipating these boys that we love are coming with a sexist attitude. And you've got to be really comfortable with acknowledging that and acknowledging it's not their fault. And surely the background to that is acknowledging that we as a society have a problem. I don't think everybody is on that page okay i'm going to try and move this on a little bit because uh, i think at the moment a lot of the the behaviors we're talking about are quite extreme um in some ways can we can we bring this down a, a peg i say down a peg it's still a big issue and talk about the normalization of sexist language for a moment because if we're because uh, we, we've all heard that students say uh, the example you give in the book matt is i got raped on fifa last night um, uh, how if we start to tackle those, we're going to start egging away at the 
the bigger problems as well, aren't we? So how do we how do we tackle that? Is that a culture thing, or do we just have to relentlessly admonish these kids every time uh, they use those sorts of phrases? Um, I think we need to. I think we need to pick up on it. Um, they don't necessarily know the full meaning of what they're saying. So you'll get boys talking about rape, like. Um, so I once walked across a playground where a boy was had jumped on another boy's back, so they were in this kind of like piggyback situation. And one boy was running, and the guy on top of him was like pretending to punch him. They were, they were just playing. And the guy was like, "Sir, sir, he's raping me." Um, and I genuinely think at that moment he wasn't being sinister. It's just that he'd grown up in an environment where rape somehow meant someone beats you or, or dominates you. And you hear that in like, you know, talking about computer games when someone beats somebody else on a game of Fortnite, they'll say, oh, I raped you at Fortnite last night. Um, and, and, and the thing to do actually is just, you know, when it happens, just say, right, stop the lesson or stop what's going on. Um, so just so you know, rape is when um, somebody inserts a penis into a vagina of somebody that doesn't know it. You know, and that real kind of anatomical language said, is that what you mean? No. And it shocks the kids. I think it shocks the kids that you're saying the word penis, rape and vagina. Um, But I'll say two things there. Firstly, you're not doing anything wrong as a teacher saying that. They're anatomical words and you're clarifying um, uh, a misconception. And if they are shocked, it means they probably knew that they were saying the wrong thing in the first place. But I think a lot of the time it happens. I always say it, kids are human beings and human beings are horrible people sometimes. Um, And kids can be horrible sometimes. And sometimes kids will laugh about those things. They'll laugh about Jimmy Savile. They'll say things like nonce. They'll They'll say things like pedo. And actually they just need to be told up front and frank, actually, you know what it means. This is what it means. Um, is it okay to say that in this classroom? No, it's not. Um, but, you know, the thing I always say to kids is like, you guys use that, you know, you use the word savile or nonce all the time. Well, when somebody actually does commit or, you know, that abhorrent, abhorrent, despicable crime, you're, you're taking the power away from that label for them because you're using it in jest or trivially. And do you know what? That... In my experience, they understand. Carly, you're nodding away there. You you agreeing with all of that? Yeah, I mean, I see boys shouting, Miss, he's raping me as they chase each other, which I find odd because they clearly understand this victim and aggressor situation, hence why they're using it, but they don't seem to connect that to the definition of the word and therefore realise how serious that is. I think the education around the words they use is is really important because I think they often don't understand the connotations of of those words and what the implications are for how we treat those things in society. Like you say, Matt, it, it dilutes the severity of how we see rape as a crime if we are joking about it. And actually, as we know, society doesn't take it that seriously anyway. So it's not just a case of the boys using it and not understanding the seriousness of it. Step outside the school and that world doesn't take it seriously either. 
Oh, that is a brilliant point. And, you know, what we were saying earlier about schools not having this sexism policy, that's it, isn't it? That's it. It's like, if you if you start having this policy, we're outlining what's wrong, not only are you a pioneer in, in, in the world of education, but as Carl just said, the rest of the bloody world doesn't take it seriously. Anyway, the, the justice system doesn't take it seriously. So as a school, you could be, you know, like the more schools that start signing up to this thing. And, 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 and when I finish my policy, I'll share it on Twitter and people can adapt it for their setting or whatever. But, you know, we could all make a real change here. Let's talk... Uh, let's talk about pornography, um, he says, with a sharp intake of breath. You suggest in your chapter, Matt, that there is an indirect link between the watching of porn and sexual violence, and certainly an indirect link between the watching of porn and non-tender masculinity. My question, therefore, is should we be doing more to limit access to porn, or, or is our best form of attack here better education around pornography? First thing about this indirect link. So I think in lots of schools, well, teenagers, boys and girls, um, watch pornography. Um, first thing I would say about um, lots of... When we talk about pornography and boys watching pornography, we're like, oh, they're watching porn, they're disgusting. Actually, no, sex is a natural part of the human condition. It's something we all want to explore. It's something lots of us have explored as teenagers. And we needn't think that now we're adults, that the, 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 those who are in the generations uh, underneath us um, should somehow be better than we were. Um, I think it's very important to say, contrary to what lots of teachers and adults think, um, watching pornography does not mean you're automatically going to go out and commit sexual violence. So I can I compare pornography to alcohol. So there will be lots of people, let's say men, lots of men that can go out and have 10, let's say 20 cans of lager, right? And go out and fall asleep, pass out, wake up the next morning, everything's fine. However, there are other men with a whole host of... Um, other things that have gone in their life, normally um, sexual abuse of themselves, normally neglect, normally um, they've been exposed to violence at a young age, and they can go out and have 20 cans of lager and they'll go out and kill somebody. The link with sexual violence and actually, com uh, sorry, pornography actually committing sexual violence, um, pornography is a variable, but it's not the only one. It tends to be that people who commit sexual violence have a history of sexual abuse themselves um, or neglect and uh, alcoholism is often a thing. Um, so, so the reason I'm making that quite laboured point is because boys do watch pornography, especially you know, obviously in secondary school, uh, and they send pornography to other boys. But we, we needn't think that just because they're doing that, they're evil, <laughs> you know, and so I do think that's um, something we need to we need to think about. I, I would agree with that. I've taught a level media years ago and taught that that very uh, thing, you know, violence in video games and so on, and the link. And I completely agree with you. But I do feel a bit differently about pornography, and I'm not saying that comes from an informed point of view, but uh, I, I I agree that I don't think young people watch pornography and go out and commit sexual violence, right? But sexual violence is a spectrum and 
you might watch it and you do not go out and rape someone, but you might watch porn where invariably the woman is submissive, spoken to very badly. I mean, I know there are feminists out there making female-friendly porn, I'm not denying that, but I'm talking about what is probably spread prolifically. Um, and that, plus the culture that we exist in, I just worry that cumulatively it creates a sense of they secretly want it. And not necessarily secretly want sex, but secretly want my approval of their physical appearance. They they want me to fancy them and grab their bum. That, that for me, is the spectrum of where that yeah. comes from. So you've made a good point. There is, you know, I was going to say, there is a link. If you watch more pornography, you're more likely to have a lower opinion of women. It's it's indirect. It's indirect. It can I I I suspect lead to 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 boys asking things of, of girls that they should really shouldn't. I think that's another thing actually with pornography and pornography education is, um, you know, there's some horrible horrible statistics about. Um, you know, young girls at 16 losing their virginity and agreeing to sexual acts that they really shouldn't agree to, at, at, certainly not at 16, but increasingly more and more girls are. And it is because, as Carly said, actually, or, you know, linked to what Carly said, boys kind of just think that's the norm because they've watched pornography. It makes me sad for boys as well because... I want them to see, if they're going to see, um, sex between people as something where they really care about each other. And it might not be a love that lasts a lifetime and all of that. And as long as it's consensual, respectful, and both parties take kind of equal enjoyment, I think it's really sad to rob them of that and for them to see it as something where all the pressure's on them. That to be hyper-masculine and in control and know what they're doing. Like, boys are sensitive I've never to... thought about that. I'm, I've never thought about that. There might be boys out there doing all these horrible things and not wanting to. They're being denied a, a positive experience themselves, which, like we've said about lots of things, they'll then have to undo when they become better informed and I think I think that's really sad for them I would rather they were educated in it being something that can be lovely as opposed to something where they feel the pressure to be a certain way and can't be their open insecure sensitive emotional selves like all teenagers are I think it beco it becomes a bit of a kind of, a, of an arms race amongst boys where you get this race to see who can find the most extreme, disgusting pornography to share. And that, that becomes something that happens like that. And then that, that was certainly on, the case when I was young. Yeah. And then it leads on to this kind of arms race of sexual behavior. Who's saying, well, I, I've done this, I've done this. I managed to persuade so-and-so to do this as well. And th that's the problem with it. It, it gives ideas that, that wouldn't be provoked naturally, I, I, I would say. Okay, so so if we're saying that education then is the answer, it feels like we're, maybe we're not getting this right yet in schools. What does good education around pornography look like? What are the solutions? Talking about it, perhaps. <laughs> like literally 
I, I think I think in schools, pornography and masturbation is generally um, talked about in terms. Firstly, that only boys do, which I think is is rubbish. Um, but I, you know, I I in the for the book, I I I, I had this interview with um, Pauline Oosterhof, if I've if I've got the the um, pronunciation right. And she talks about talking about pornography, but looking at pornography. Now, obviously, you don't have to show any bits, no more than you'd see in a sex education video. But, you know, even little things like these women in these horrible like contortionist positions um, and looking at it and actually, you know, as a still, not, not watching a video, but a still and, and just talking to the class and be like, um so so what you know what's wrong here what what might feel uncomfortable like this is a this is a film you know talking about pornography because but again it's like i said earlier with the sex sexism or the you know the moment you put yourself out there and and are brave enough to do that yeah i mean what what you just described was i, I mean I, i've 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 taught enough personal well-being lessons to know my way around that sort of thing but it's that still filled filled me with an enormous level of jeopardy. It's difficult, isn't it? Because because in any given classroom, in any given classroom of say thirty kids, maybe thirty three percent of them watch porn regularly. Maybe another thirty three percent have been sent pornography, and the other thirty three percent have never engaged with pornography at all. But you could show a still from. A pornography film, as Ustahov says, where actually you don't see because of how the woman is positioned, you don't see any bits. Um, you might see the man's bum, right? And and that is a topic for discussion. So, what is the difference between a sex education lesson and actually saying, right? Actually, part of sex is pornography. And here's a still from a pornography film. Look at where the man is positioned. Look at how the woman is positioned. Where's the power dynamic there? Um, do you think that the woman feels... Com- is that a natural position for a woman to be in? Our kids are getting less innocent, younger, you know, and so we, we can't underestimate. Even if they're not watching pornography, they're, they, they're being sent it, sent it. Not at 15 years old, but at 13 years old. My worry there, though, mate, genuinely, is that is that 33% that haven't yet spoken to it and the, the parental complaints that I'm going to get from them... No, but when we're giving now sex education lessons, forgive... I, I seem to remember when I got mine, I had to, a letter home. So is it not that schools can just say, we're going to we, we're gonna talk lessons about pornography and we're going we're gonna to analyse... You know, schools could even give the lesson to parents. Invite parents in, or, or nowadays, you know, do it all... And show them what they're trying to get. So parents can opt in and parents can make the judgment. And actually, I think lots of parents would appreciate that. Because lots of parents don't know what to say or do. That's a really good point. That is a really good point. What do you, what do you think, Carly? Do you think that would work? If the parents believe and, I guess, accept that their child accesses pornography, because I imagine none of them know about it and are okay then it could work 
I feel like with anything in education, the kids you really need to get to are the hardest to reach. Their parents are the hardest to reach. And it might be, you know, a simplistic logic here, but if you've got a particularly young person who accesses particularly unpleasant pornography, perhaps quite frequently, I doubt their parents know. I doubt their parents would... Are their parents likely to then think to come into that session? You're you're going to get the woke parents anyway. But that's no reason not to do it. No, I agree, yeah. I just wonder if some of... Maybe this is a bit sort of bottom of the iceberg, but I feel like to accept that pornography depicts women badly and in a way that we don't want, you're also having to unpick the fact that most of the time we don't talk about the fact that girls are entitled to be comfortable and dare I say it enjoy that experience as much as a boy is and you know like I said about rape you can step outside the school gates and society still isn't ready or as ready for that conversation as it is about men much of the kind of sex education is about nuts and bolts keeping yourself safe and and so I think that's all absolutely relevant I just feel a bigger part of it is what you're entitled to you're entitled to a safe respectful situation and I don't just mean safe in terms of STIs and pregnancy I mean in terms of feeling entirely comfortable at every single point I don't think we talk about that side of it enough it's the second time you've used the word respect in terms of these relationships Carly sex is naughty right sometimes and and I'm not, I don't want to make, I don't want to be like, well, this is bad, this is bad, this is bad. If you are into this, you are bad. But I think I want to at least open the debate and say, empower women and men, you know, our boys. But it's not about saying what's right or wrong, or saying if you have filthy pornographic sex and do all those things you see in pornography, if you see that, that means that's disgusting. Not at all. Right, but it's saying just so you know, what you're seeing here isn't natural. It's it's staged. It's 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 cinematography. <laughs> I think you I know. think this the, the conversation we're having is kind of proving that it's an absolute minefield, isn't it? That's that's the problem. It's very very difficult for teachers to 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 to, to find a way through this, and that's why it's going to continue to be a problem for some time. <laughs> Can we have a look at some Twitter questions, um, guys? So um, I've got a few. There's this this topic I have to say has produced some interesting ones, a lot of questions and some really interesting ones. Um, the first one comes from a, a PE teacher who asks, um, "What role does PE play in this?" And, and this teacher says, "I've consistently had to defeat the traditional stereotype of a male chauvinist." How big a role do you think male or female PE teachers play in educating on sexism? A huge role. There's a very big research picture that 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 shows that um, team sports uh, in secondary schools can often um, be a, like a breeding ground for certainly homophobic. 
uh, attitudes uh, and often sexism. PE teachers are very aware of that and PE teachers are doing a lot. I also think that PE teachers, um, they're adored by lots of boys. PE teachers are absolute role models and, and you know, we all know the boys that, that don't engage but love their PE teacher. Um, I'm also aware of the fact that often PE teachers, like English teachers, like history teachers, like maths teachers, are PE teachers because they were good at PE when they were in school and English teachers are, are English teachers because they were good at English in school and often they also went through this kind of same system whereby the changing room was an area for or a breeding ground for bullying and the othering of men that weren't good at sport or boys that weren't good at sport as either female or, or gay in a pejorative sense. Um, I know that there are loads and loads and loads of um, male PE teachers that are trying to fight that. I also know from anecdotally that still in many schools, the football team is still a place where it's all about being a man and not a girl. Like the worst thing you can be is a girl. And any boy that isn't good at sport is a girl or gay. Um, so I do think it's a huge issue. But I feel that PE teachers have more responsibility and 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 they probably aren't gonna to like to hear this. But I think in some schools, PE teachers have an added responsibility to challenge um, conceptions of gender. Because firstly, because they're in a position to do so, because the boys adore them so much. But secondly, also because often the sports pitch is quite frankly, where sexism or the othering of um, people that aren't male happens most. Well, I work in an all-boys school and I think our PE team do a really good job, actually, of bringing the boys up well. Lots of them are on the pastoral team and so they also have conversations with them which are related to their social issues and I, I do overhear them... I wouldn't say correcting their language, but saying, oh, that's not a nice way to speak about a girl or something like that. Like, in my school, they don't shy away from it. And actually, in my previous school, which was mixed, the head of PE was male. And he was really invested in that sporting campaign for girls. Was it Every Girl Can or something like that? Because he used to get really frustrated with the fact that... That's this Girl Can, yeah. If someone was going to come to the lesson without their kit and sit on the floor and refuse to engage, he said it was usually a girl. They had, you know, a fear of engaging in PE for a number of quite obvious reasons. And he really wanted to do something about that. So I'm going to stick up for those two experiences. That's, that's really nice to hear because I think we, what we're agreeing on is that sport can have this really powerful pull on boys and, and particularly their attitudes to girls. And if it's being harnessed in that way, in that positive way, well, that's perfect. It's a perfect example because we, we're, we're obviously not seeing that as much and that's wonderful to hear. Okay, let's, let's, uh, let's move on because I think this one might be uh, interesting as well. How big a factor is culture and religion in sexist behaviours? So this is one I'm... This is dodgy. 
I have lots of, over the years, I've had lots of people say to me, in their culture, they don't respect women. And I think that, I think it's racist. So, so Matt, from, from my experience, I mean, I, I worked, my, my last school was, was 85% uh, non-white uh, and loads of kids there were, were Muslims and, and, I, and I know you were being um, polite in the way that you, you were discussing that and, and kind of the way that sometimes people insinuate that when they're talking about people from other cultures but I think that that's fundamentally what, what they're getting at and it's this kind of um, innuendo suggesting that, that it's, it's Islam that has an issue with, with women. And, and I've seen some, some, you know, some shocking attitudes from, from some boys um, who are Muslims about women, but I've also seen some really shocking attitude from, from white boys and from non-Muslims when they've been talking about uh, women as well. So I, I don't think it's, it's, it's as you say, I, I agree that it's, it's a cop-out to, to be blaming the culture or the religion for it. it it's, just, it's just sexism, uh, and that just happens to be coming from someone uh, of that background. Yeah. It, for me, that's also a denial. It's that's a problem with that culture. You, you would you say that to a pupil who didn't have a, a designated religion? Would you say, you know, oh yeah, they think that because that's the way society is. We need to do something about it. No, you wouldn't. You to trace it to the religion is. I think it's lazy. It's not a religion-specific problem, is it? Okay. Um, Carly, I think I'd like you to tackle this one first, if that's all right. Um, in boys and girls only settings, working on the theory of you can't be what you can't see, it, is there a problem that these students aren't seeing, say, successful women in their setting? Or vice versa? Probably. I, I would imagine girls' schools make a point of inviting female speakers in so that girls are shown a variety of role models. I wonder if it consciously happens in boys' schools to show them the variety of role models in that sense. Um, it's done with good intentions, or people just don't think about it at all. But I, I get a bit funny about you can't be what you can't see, because I think it's an oversimplification of who I am if people assume I can only be inspired by another woman I've been inspired by lots of women I've been inspired by lots of men and and I and I can't just be reduced to my gender either you can't just put a woman on the stage in 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 front of me and say oh look Carly this woman's inspiring I'm sure she is but she could be very different the only thing we might have in common is hormones and then maybe that's my age maybe because you know, I'm older I can sort of cherry pick this aspect of that person this aspect of that person whether they're male or female doesn't matter um, I think we need to teach kids to be inspired by a variety of people um, okay one final one I've got, I've got a feeling the answer to this might be might be fairly brief do boys experience sexism my argument is, is yeah, a tiny bit, but it's absolutely nothing in comparison to what girls do. I made the point before that you, I think we widely accept that you, a white person can't experience racism. There's, you know, lots of discourse about, there's power structures 
and if you're telling the joke from the top down it doesn't it doesn't have the same impact the other way around and to deny that is daft and I would say the same with boys that doesn't mean to say they don't face hardships because of assumptions judgments prejudice people have about their gender but I'm not sure I'd go as far as to say they experience sexism can I tell you a story um so uh my first school an external speaker came in and his question was are there any strong men here right and um a geezer in the maths department who works out a bit like he, he like started you know like pumping his biceps and stuff um and everyone cheered and right we need another strong man um and everyone around me started pointing at me. Not because I'm strong, by the way. I'm not strong at all. I'm very weak. But at that time, I was working out a lot. I was in good shape. Um, and I remember thinking, like, flipping hell. Um, this is the worst. Like, I don't bother stand up here. But what I found myself doing was everyone was, like, pointing at me, going, go on, stand up, Matt, stand up, Matt. So I stood on my chair... And then I started also doing this thing. I was there, just in a in a building, like full of two hundred teachers, flexing my muscles and stuff. And everyone was cheering, blah blah. And there was wolf whistling and that. And not not at me because they fancied me, but just because I was just some idiot in my um, training year. I was training. It was my training year, standing up, like pope, flexing my muscles, and everyone was getting involved in the thing. I drove home that day. I said, Jesus, was I just objectified? <laughs> and I think I was a little bit. Like, and I don't mean in the sense that I'm this amazing person, but that was that's the only time I've ever been objectified in my life. Like, women are, are objectified on the daily, right? When men are objectified, they're objectified without threat. And I think that's a key difference. Oh, what's yeah. the point? Yeah, that's absolutely that's key. And that's it, isn't it? And and that is exactly it. And that is the point because... Flip it round. Uh, can you imagine the other way? A female member of staff, I was young at the time, 22, 23. I mean, it's end of, it's end of isn't it? Well, I think we've probably uh, summarised that question nicely there. Um, Carly, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you uh, with us this evening, and you've been, it's been a really interesting exercise, I think, for us three to have a slightly um, different point of view, I think, in a fresh voice, and I think I'm hopefully uh, that that uh, has has been worthwhile for more, you too. More, Absolutely. More articulate yeah. is the word you're looking for, James. <laughs> yeah, yeah, maybe, maybe. <laughs> Thanks very much. And, uh, Thanks, Carly. Carly, we'll maybe, we'll Thank maybe you. have you on again sometime. <laughs> okay, well, that, that was a fascinating discussion. Uh, really enjoyed that. It's nice to have a different point of view on the pod, wasn't it, fellas? Yeah. Um, Brilliant. Uh, particularly someone as, as articulate as Carly. So if, um, if we're interested in this topic, then, gents, where, where do we go for some further reading? I mean, I... I think every single teacher in the country, like not just te head teachers, any head teacher listening to this now needs to show their staff or read themselves and then show their staff 
Um, the UK Feminista Report, it's just everywhere. It's really accessible, but it really goes into the level of harassment that our, you know, our young female students are, are facing. Um, I think also the Women Equalities Commission 2016 did a, um, uh, a report called Sexual Harassment and Sexual Violence in Schools. Um, and that's really important because not only does it give statistics, but um, it gives a suggested policy, which is in the book, about literally what you need to be doing to to make it clear to teachers about what is or, or not acceptable. I think one, one thing that when, when we do these episodes, we, we try to make it accessible for people who have not necessarily read the book, or we try to give more details for some people who have read the book, so we've got a little bit for everything. I think this is one of those chapters where you really do need to read the opening where you get those voices of teachers um, that, that Matt's collected and collated together. I know when I first read them, when you first sent me them over the first time, I, w- I was kind of gobsmacked in, in how powerful those voices yeah, it takes, are. So, it takes the wind out of you, doesn't it? It, it I think, really yeah, does. Um, it really does. And so, yeah, so yeah um, you know, either go back and, and reread those anecdotes or, or get, get your hands on a copy and have a look at it. You know, I, I think they speak for themselves. Yeah, and that, that doesn't mean buy a copy. I mean, do that if you want, but just borrow one or nick one from somewhere. Just, you've got to read those, you've got to read those anecdotes that open the chapter. Okay, um, thank you very much, chaps. That was a, a really good chat. And um, I, I, like I said, I don't think we, we managed to get many much in the way of solutions, but hopefully we've got some good advice for schools going forward, some ways that you can uh, try, and, try and tackle this within your schools. Um, but it's a big problem and it's not going away. So... Um, hopefully we've been of help for now uh, you can obviously follow us in all the usual places uh, I don't think we need to repeat our Twitter handles again but follow us on at boys don't try please leave a comment let us know what you think um, retweet the joy of this wonderful podcast he says without with absolutely no sense of humility and uh, we will see you again next time cheers for listening